Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhart. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. We'd like to welcome our guest, Nora Levine, photographer, artist, writer, and new mom, who's here to talk about her book, Pet Photography, published by Rocky Nook. Nora, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. 50% of the photoactive hosts have pets. <laughs> really? <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, 100%, we have a bird. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. I'm, I'm not allergic to birds, so uh, that's why we, we did- can have a bird. That's why we talked to someone about bird photography recently. Yes, that was the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really like pet photography. I've got two cats, and if you've been following the show for a while, you've certainly seen photos of them on some of the show note pages. And I really like pet photography. It's challenging. It's interesting. And, and I don't have kids at home anymore. I have a son who's 29 years old. Um, and pet photography is something I guess, I guess anyone who has a pet and has a camera is going to take pictures of their pets, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that most people that have pets are really into their pets. They spend a lot of time with them. And now that photography has become more ubiquitous, most people have cameras. If not digital SLRs, they have cameras on their phones. And so, you know, they're they're family members. They're part of your household. So most people want to take pictures of them. Yeah, I find that it's a, it's a popular thing now to do. And you take photos as a professional don't you so you go into people's houses and you get their animals to pose and you take portraits and print them are there a lot of people that want professional photos of their pets yes i mean it's been something i've been doing for over 15 years it has become more of a thing now and more common now than it was initially kind of started out as maybe something that only some people did and now it's pretty common that people really feel like their animals are part of their family. And so as much as a family portrait photographer would be needed, a pet portrait photographer is is in demand because people want to document their families. So it's part of, you know, it's part of something that's normal for people. And I love going into people's homes because it shows a personal aspect of their lives. It's different than going to a park, which can be fun. And I also do that. But a lot of times I prefer to go into people's homes and include their surroundings and um, personal style and in- incorporate that as, as well into the portraits. And also pets are really comfortable in their own home. So it's, it seems to work out well that way. That's a really good point. How often do you find that people are asking for like, like I want a photo setup of just my pet or versus, you know, here's our family and it's pictures of us with the pet. I mean, is there a, a difference there or in terms of being more deliberate about what you're shooting? I think most people are typically looking to be included in the portraits these days specifically Mm -hmm. because they can take photographs of their own pets with their phones and their own cameras. But what's really difficult is being in your own photographs. And what I love capturing the mo- what I love most about capturing people with their animals is that connection. And that's something that you really can't do in a selfie. It's not as easy. Um, it's fun to do that, but it's it's there's no comparison to having a professional photograph you and your family and your loved ones and your pets. So I find that the majority of people want to include their pet and be in the photographs. 
and they also want kind of hero portraits of their pets as well. It's something that it's an, it's a level above what most people can do on their own too. So I get a little bit of both. We like to say that this is not a podcast about gear and it's not, we don't talk about specific cameras and lenses, but when you're shooting a specific type of subject, gear is important and you have a whole chapter in your book about gear. Briefly, what does one need for really good pet photos? Obviously more than a smartphone. What I like to call a real camera, not that I'm denigrating smartphone cameras. What's the ideal um, camera kit for shooting pets? Well, I don't know that there's an ideal, but for me in the way that I like to work, I think having a decent zoom lens is good because it allows you to get on the ground, be kind of at eye level with the dog, cat, or whatever, whoever you're photographing. And they move around a lot. So it allows you to kind of have flexibility while you're working and not have to physically move, which can also sometimes disturb the scene, you know, so this gives you a lot more flexibility. So for example, I love a 24 to 70 millimeter lens that allows me to physically connect and be interacting with the pets. And I'm mostly talking about dogs and cats here. Um, and same with horses sometimes too. But um, when I find if I have a really long telephoto lens, there's just more physical distance between me and the animal. And it's a, it's a lot more difficult for me to have connection with that animal. So for me, a zoom lens is probably the must must have. But can't that be useful sometimes to be a little bit further away from a pet that might be a bit skittish? I'm thinking more Definitely. of cats than dogs. Definitely. A zoom, I mean, a longer lens is is an asset for 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 horses for um, for definitely for cats, just kind of being more fly on the wall, documentary, maybe a little bit more subtle, a longer lens can definitely have a place. So I think it's all part of your tool bag. You know, gear is important. They're tools to help you facilitate getting what you want. And I think um, there's nothing, you know, there's not one perfect thing, but I feel like having a zoom lens and definitely a telephoto lens is really helpful. I guess one of the things that I want to know is what are some differences between your sort of general uh, snapshotty pictures of pets versus pet photography set in like quotes and italics? Like what are we looking at in terms of, um, you know, being more deliberate about shooting at pet photo? Uh, do you use like extra lighting? Do you do like different setups and Honestly, part of the thing that I want to learn today is like, how do you get the pets to do what you want? <laughs> because uh, actually, to be honest, that's like my only real question because <laughs> I can't imagine getting a cat to do anything. So like, like, how does that work? What, what's the difference between, you know, uh, pet photography in, the, in this sense versus, hey, I'm just going to go take some pictures of my animal. I think that's a good question. The, I think if you think about what makes a good portrait of a, of a person, um, all of that applies to pet photography. So you asked about lighting. Um, yes, good lighting is huge. It's an important element. Um, composition, color, use of color, use of design, um, all of those things make a good portrait, whether you were taking a picture of a dog or a cat. Um, I think it what makes it, it's more challenging because you don't have a person that you can say, turn your head this way or, you know, lift your, you know, 
lift your arm up over here and, you know, use this posing stool. I mean, there's not, it's a, it's even a really solidly trained dog is going to kind of do what they want. Um, mm -hmm. So it comes with a kind of next level challenge of, of um, for posing or capturing them in, in that environment. So I think all of the things that make a good portrait contribute to making a good portrait of a pet. The other thing is, um, is having that connection with a pet to where they look relaxed and content in the photograph. So I think a lot of times when I see portraits of people that t are taking pet portraits in the beginning, they're, they're an the animals in their images maybe look a little bit scared or they are um, timid or they're just awkward. So I think a lot of the times it's it might be either an editing choice or just that that connection and giving that space for that animal to be comfortable with the with the photograph process. Um, so I don't know. Does that answer your question a little bit about what makes it different? Yeah, that part yeah, of it. Okay, it does. So I'm curious, um, I'm curious yeah. as to how long it takes you to get. Obviously, you're experienced at this, so you know how to act with animals. And how long does it take you to get the animals comfortable? Obviously, all pets are different. Cats are more skittish than dogs, but does it take 15 minutes, an hour? Does it take longer to get the animal comfortable enough? Because I know that my cats, even one that's six years old, um, if I'm pointing the camera at him, he's going to look the other way because he knows it's something going on that he doesn't want. Um, I, I basically get lucky when I get a good photo of one of my cats. Sure. I mean, luck is awesome to have on your side. <laughs> I think to answer your question about how long it takes, I've done events, for example, earlier on in my career where I would do photo booths as an example. And so they were like 10 minute slots and I would have, you know, dogs and cats, come, mostly dogs coming in every 10 minutes. And could I get one shot? That was good. That was my goal. Sure. I can do that in 10 minutes. Um, and it also does depend on the dog. So you just need one second or less than, you know, one two fiftieth of a second to get an image that might work. The kind of bigger question and, and goal for me is to get basically a portfolio of images for my clients that they're going to be able to choose from, maybe make an album, a wall gallery from. So it, my goal is not one image. So for me, and some photographers, other photographers may work differently. For me, that process is a minimum of an hour and a half long, you know, and and some of that connection is working with the pet's owners. So the more comfortable the pet's owners are, the more comfortable the animal is. And if, if I'm photographing a pet with their owner, then that needs to be, that takes some time. It takes time for people to connect with each other, you know, to feel comfortable. And all of that kind of plays out in better photographs for me. So I personally love to take the time to create portraits um, in a way that isn't rushed, isn't pressured, and everybody enjoys that process. Part of the fun for me and part of the, I think, the lasting, the lasting product is that experience for my clients. And so when they look at those photographs of their pets, not only do they have a beautiful image, but they remember the process of making the image. And for me, that is a gift beyond just a piece of paper and a print that is like a memory that I'm giving them or facilitating for them that they can hold in their heart forever. And it sounds kind of sappy, but it's like really true for me. Um, and what my clients repeatedly tell me is they have such a wonderful experience of making that portrait. So the time is partially making that, 
it comfortable, but also making it fun for the pet and the pet parent. And that that all contributes to making a good, solid portrait and so, experience. So often it's you need to get the owners comfortable um, because maybe they're worried that their pet's not going to show off correctly when you're there and they're not going to get the kind of photos of that cute position the cat lies on the bed in. Um, and they're afraid that they're they're paying you to come and take the pictures and the cat won't act the way they want or the dog or whatever. Right. I think that's a good point. And I've had experiences where um, it is about managing the person as well as managing the pet and maybe more so the person and their energy just so it is a calm environment for their pet. And, um, you know, I've had friends or colleagues that have said, I'm, I'm done with people portraits. I read, I want to photograph pets. And I'm like, you know, the pets don't, <laughs> don't call you to set up a portrait session. The pets aren't the ones, you know, so you really have to be able to be willing to work with people. And a lot of times, you know, pet people are, we're a little eccentric. I mean, there's, you get, you know, there's no, um, you don't, you know, it's an important part of, of taking the photographs is interacting with the people, making sure they're comfortable and it spills out into the energy for the animal too. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about um, photographing specific animals, such as cats, for example. <laughs> Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code photoactive. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code photoactive or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. Okay, as I said before the break, we're going to talk about photographing specific animals, and you have three chapters in your book, one about photographing those things called dogs, the important chapter is the one photographing cats, and then there's one about horses and other animals. Let's get the dogs out of the way first. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm being snarky. It's because I've always been a cat person. So dogs, you have the advantage of being able to get them to sit and lie down and play dead, which no self-respecting cat would ever do, but I'm sure that there are challenges shooting dogs as well, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, all dogs are not created equal. They are not trained equally. Uh, so I've had, I mean, I started photographing pets in animal shelters. That's how I learned how to work with different types of personalities and characteristics and levels of training or not training. So yeah, I mean, there's there's challenges getting them to listen. It's kind of important to just to read what you're working with when you walk in the door. And, and after I interview with, you know, the parent, the pet parents, find out kind of what they know. Do they know how to sit? Do they know how to stay? Some of them do, some of them don't. And so a lot of times for me, it's a matter of creating distractions for them or something interesting for them to perk up for. And sometimes, you know, you might get a dog that's like a hummingbird. And what do you do with that? You know, and it's not the easiest 
So it's a matter of getting their attention just long enough to get a shot. Um, and you asked earlier, what was kind of like, how do you get their attention? How does that work? Is that a big one? For me, I would say overall, I mean, there's squeaky toys, there's treats. Treats are a big one, but they can sometimes get overly excited about treats. So that can sometimes be a problem. I usually save treats for towards the end of a photo shoot, you know, my last resort. But the biggest kind of thing that I talk about in the book is that whatever you use, you should use it, any kind of tactic, you should use it sparingly. Mm. And that means if you have a squeaky toy, for example, not squeak, 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 you know, for five minutes because they get desensitized. They get uninterested. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of amateurs make or even pet parents make when they're trying to help is they'll squeak a toy for five minutes and the dog could not care less about that noise anymore. But where yeah. there is interest is if something comes out of nowhere, it makes a noise and sparks kind of a curiosity and then it disappears. Oh, and there it is again. So there's this inconsistency and a level of surprise that can pique their interest. And so it's variety as well, kind of changing it up constantly too. So even though you have a subject that isn't necessarily uh, willing to do everything that you would like or, or that can take direction, you're still using a lot of techniques to elicit specific responses, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of employing tricks to like grab their attention or make them look quizzical or et cetera. Yeah, there, there's a way, I mean, I'm going for a certain kind of look. It's a relaxed, happy, a lot of times with dogs, it's their ears perked up a little bit. You know, it's, it's not, they're not pressed back on their head. There are signs in which you, when you see a photograph of a dog, that the dog looks uncomfortable. And I talk about that in, in my book as well. It's, you know, their eyes wide, really showing a lot of white in their eyes, their tail tucked, their their ears can be pressed back towards their head. I mean, these kinds of signs you want to do the opposite of. And so I find a lot of times making noises can elicit a different type of more of excited, curious, generally a, what we would consider a happier look for a dog. So I'm directing it. I'm not a complete fly on the wall. I'm not completely passive in these photo shoots. I'm definitely a proactive participant in getting some kind of a look or a gesture from them most of the time, unless I'm photographing them in action, for example, or um, just interacting with their pet parent. That's another example where I may not um, squeak a toy when they're interacting with their, their pet parent. So this is interesting because this links up with an experience I had a few months ago. Um, my partner and I had a portrait shot by Martin Parr, who's a very well-known photographer. Um, he has a foundation in Bristol and he was doing a fundraising event. We'll link in the show notes to the episode where I discussed this. And... He didn't have squeaky toys, but it was pretty similar. He set us up in front of a background. He had his camera, and he told us to do certain things. And he said, you know, put your hands on her shoulder and then give him a kiss and then do this. And it was very directive to the point that we forgot that we were in front of the camera. And I'm thinking that's exactly the same thing you're trying to do, right? Exactly. I mean, I tell, I've taught in the past as well. And I think when I teach and I, I talk about how to create a good photograph and a good experience for, for clients and working with pets. It's all about creating an environment and that includes lighting. It includes, you know, a, a, a level of comfort. It includes, um, you know, backgrounds, all of those things, like combining all those things, creating this environment and then directing just enough to allow for natural 
interactions, natural responses to occur. So a lot of people say, your images look so unposed. Well, it, they are and they aren't. So they're directed to a certain point and then natural interactions take place within my kind of controlled environment of lighting, background, composition, and that kind of thing. For somebody who wants to get into doing this more than just taking pictures of their own animals, is this something where they would need a studio to do this? Or what sort of percentage of photo shoots do you do that are studio versus going to someone's house or going, you know, out to a park or something? Like, do I need, a you know, to set up a studio if I want to do this more seriously than just my own pets? No, absolutely not. You don't need to set up Good. a studio. You don't need a ton of equipment. Um, you could get a reflector. You could get, you know, something to bounce light, um, a diffuser, a camera. You can go to an animal shelter and practice and volunteer and learn how to interact with animals that way while contributing to the community. You can go on location into a park um, you know, so you don't need, we don't need those things. I mean, one thing I think about working in a park that's challenging is that there aren't really boundaries. So you're either working with a dog or a cat on, on leash. Mm-hmm. Um, so at a home environment, it's a little bit more contained. So I think go into people's homes, you can call your friends or neighbors and say, you want to practice. And most people are going to say yes and love to have the opportunity to have their pets photographed. Do you always shoot handheld or do you ever set up a camera on a tripod or do you use both? I mostly shoot handheld. I don't like, I feel really limited on a, on a tripod because I have to be so active when I'm photographing pets. I, I change what I, you know, change my angle often, change my, you have to kind of be on the move when you're photographing pets, kind of you can work in one area for a little while and then it kind of gets stagnant or they get, you can tell it's not working anymore and you want to change environments. So setting up on a tripod just seems to hold me back. Um, when what, lighting... what I noticed in your book though, is a lot of the photos have very shallow depth of field, which means that you've got this narrow range of positioning to get the face in focus. Yes. It's challenging. And I photograph a lot. You know, I photograph if I'm taking pictures for a client, I'll be there for, you know, two, two and a half hours on average. So I'm, you know, I'm photographing a fair amount. I'm not, I don't photograph on motor drive and just edit for days. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, there is a practice in it. I do love shooting with a shallow depth of field and my images are fairly simple in terms of composition. So, um, but yeah, tripod, I feel like would just hold, slow me down the whole process down. When you approach a photo shoot, do you typically have some ideas in mind? Like like after meeting with the family, you know, okay, this is a, a light-colored dog. Maybe we want to set up something with a dark background. Or like, do you have sort of setups and things in mind? Or do you mostly find yourself just sort of f- figuring out the scene when you're there and working with it? My preference with photographing clients is to meet them in person at the location before the photo shoot. So I can photograph with my phone some, um, some of the location options. And then I will go with some ideas in my head. I'm not a specific hard and fast shot list, but I will have some, some kind of pre-planning in mind. I do tell in terms of wardrobe, I don't prefer to have everybody wearing matching clothes. That's not my style. And it doesn't tend to be my client style, 
but I tell them to consider the fact that their dog or cat might be dark colored and to wear something that has a little bit of contrast. So yeah, all of that stuff is, is intentional. Okay. So the most important part of the book, the chapter on photographing cats. So how do I get my cats to sit still when I want to photograph them? I know it's just not possible. And, and I guess that's the biggest challenge of an animal like that. It's true that some older cats will sit still, um, but most cats, they just don't ever do what you want them to do, do they? I, I noticed that you have, you have one to... tip. Hold on. She has one tip about getting cats' attention, and it is catnip. I was going to say, you have to drug them. Yes. I was going to make a joke, but maybe it's in the book there catnip <laughs> it's a real deal yeah i mean catnip can go it can go south if if de- it can make them excited and it can make them kind of chilled out so it depends yeah. on the cat and how they respond to it but it's definitely something in my bag of tricks that i will pull out when i'm work- working with a cat it's it's always a good thing to try cat toys you know they have long cat toys i mean cats kind of respond to different things they're not they're not going to respond to squeaky toys typically some will be food motivated i've been surprised where you know holding a bag of treats was enough to have a cat sit in front of me or hold still long enough for me to work with them so um food motivation is sometimes an option and um you know they they like crinkly sounds they like feathery toys they like being up high, so if you can use something like a prop, piece of furniture, a cat tree or something, and photographing them in, in places that they already like to be is a really helpful thing. Um, photographing your own cats might be different than photographing somebody else's cat. So if you have a hard time photographing your own cats, you know, maybe you want to try photographing somebody else's and see, and see if that feels any differently for you. I mean, I feel like our cats and our dogs act of the way they want to around us they might respond to somebody else differently i notice a lot of the photos of cats are shot indoors we have cats that we let out Um, we have a fairly large garden Um, and that can actually be easier because sometimes they'll run around a little bit and then they'll just find a bit of grass where they want to sit and chill for a while whereas in the house they just always have a bed to run under if you're doing something yeah, I think that, I mean, with, with any animal that I'm photographing in a house, I will close doors off so they have limited, um, you know, exit points. That can be helpful. Any, you know, kind of detaining them on some level is, is helpful. And having a garden space where you have, I remember photographing a cat in a garden. It was so peaceful and they just kind of did their own thing and walked around. And I, it was a more of a responsive um, interaction and photographic experience. I mean, I was just kind of, seeing where he would go and and then I would look for a nice background and see what I could do. Uh, So there is kind of a different approach with photographing cats. It takes patience. I mean, that's another thing is that it really does take, it's not something that can happen in a few minutes. and, and, And so sometimes just being patient and being quiet and just kind of waiting for things to show up is, is the way it, it needs to be. So other animals, you have a chapter about horses and other animals. Do you shoot a lot of photos of people's horses? I love photographing horses. It's something Where that, do you live? I live in Austin, Texas. And so the, so that's a, a horse area. There's a horse area, and I used to live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, so also horses there. Um, so, you know, they're different. It's not something that I'm, it's not as in demand for me and, and something that I've promoted from a marketing perspective as much with, as I have with dogs and cats. But it is definitely something for people that have horses that are kind of pets to them. 
versus like show animals because I'm not really a show animal photographer. You know, when mm. somebody calls me and they want to, you know, they show their horses or something, I'm not the photographer that anyone's going to call or hire because they want a very a perfect um, positioning on their horse in a photograph or yeah. their dog or their cat. Um, but if they have a, you know, an animal in their life that they love, like a horse, that is a part, you know, a pet to them, then, then I have, there's no difference to me capturing that connection than, than it would be with an owner and their dog, for example. That sounds like a nice distinction because you can have more sort of formal portraits uh, with people and with pets and something that's just more casual. And clearly your style lean, leads more toward the, the casual, comfortable, experiential side. Um, is there a lot of difference between those two styles? I mean, it, it, it sounds as if the more formal ones would be, I don't know, more nitpicky or is that? Well, for me, it's the reason I love to photograph animals and people together. And that's become more of an important aspect of my work in the later years of my career is that connection that people have. And that's just not, and it's not to say that people that have horses that show them in an arena are, don't have a good connection with their horse, but it's not as relaxed of a can like, for portrait speak, speak, it's not it's not as relaxed of a connection to photograph. So um, for me, it's just my preference. You know, I'm trying to to get the types of clients that I want to work with and have experiences in in ways as an artist that I want. So it's just kind of what I've gravitated. Okay, as as someone who doesn't own pets, it's nice to hear that there's more to it than just hey, I'm going to point my camera at a dog. Um, you know that that this really does have like all the same uh, variety and uh, visual and emotional differences as, you know, people portrait photography. And sometimes you got to use treats to imp uh, influence the people too. So yeah, we all need treats. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Nora Levine, the book is pet photography. If you are a subscriber to our newsletter at photoactive.co, we are giving away two copies of the book. Um, so if you're not a subscriber, subscribe to our newsletter. Nora, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Okay, it's time for our snapshots. Um, I think Jeff has something really interesting this week. Jeff, what have you got? So let me preface this by saying uh, as a person who writes about photography, I get lots of uh, PR materials about Kickstarter projects, and most of them I really want to ignore because either they're they're silly or they're small or they're not funded yet. Uh, people really just want attention for their Kickstarters. And that's that's fine, but it's not really something that we tend to do. Um, I'm going to make an exception this week. Uh, my snapshot is the Travel Tripod by Peak Design. Now, they launched this as a Kickstarter because they've launched all their products. Kirk and I have both had various uh, different bags and straps from bags Peak and Design. straps and yeah, excellent they, stuff. Excellent stuff. Um, and they've also always delivered on their stuff. A lot of Kickstarters don't. And also, I bring this up because this project is already funded, so it's going to happen. Uh, in fact, it's sort of spectacular. It's more than already funded. <laughs> it's, I think they blew away their funding goal in less than a day. Yeah, their their goal was half a million dollars to get this into production. And as I look at it now, a couple weeks before or a week or so before the show 
is posted, uh, they're past $5 million. So this is definitely going to happen. Um, so it's it's the Travel Tripod by Peak Design. Um, I also say this, too, because I have one here um, right now for a very short amount of time. Uh, one of my editors at DP Review let me borrow the one that they got. Um, what's cool about this tripod? It is, well, f- first of all, go back and listen to our, our episode on tripods because... It talks a lot about stability uh, and size. Uh, this is a travel tripod, so it's very small. And it's not small in the sense of sort of being being tall, but in terms of density. So when it's all folded and compact, the diameter is about the size of a water bottle. Compared to the three-legged thing tripod that I got to go to Hawaii, um, like that is almost double the width in terms of the the circumference of of the tripod. Um, when it's fully extended, they're both about the same height. Uh, the travel tripod comes in either aluminum or carbon fiber, and I'm a little surprised that the carbon fiber on the Kickstarter is a lot more popular than the aluminum. So the Kickstarter price for the carbon travel tripod is $479. Normally, it's going to be a $600 tripod. Uh, the aluminum one is $289. Normally, it's going to be $350. It's it's compact. Uh, it's fairly light. And it has an integrated ball head. And what's interesting about the ball head here is it doesn't take up much more space. Unlike other ball heads that have two or three knobs for positioning the camera, this has just one large circular dial that adjust the tension of the entire ball head. Uh, we'll have pictures in the show notes. You really have to, to see it to see how it works. Um, and, and in fact, go to the um, Kickstarter webpage and look at the video that they have that explains it as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I will mention that the, the one that I have here, uh, it is pre-production. So, you know, I haven't like really reviewed it at all. Um, but just like my playing with it for a day or so, um, it's a lot more stable than I expected. Part of the issue is the ball head comes up from, from a center column. You need to raise it at least a little bit in order to use the ball head. And so normally you would think, okay, as soon as, soon as you raise a center column, that's when things get a little more, a little more shaky. Uh, this seems to be a lot more sturdy than others that I've seen with, with the column completely raised. Um, it's, it, you know, with peak design stuff. It's very cleverly designed. It has extra little things like um, from the bottom of the center column, they've integrated a small smartphone uh, bracket. So you can just put that up onto the ball head and mount your smartphone when you need to get some shots or like maybe a a long time lapse or something. Uh, it's, It's very, very cool. I've ordered one and um, I think if you're looking for a travel tripod specifically, not something that's going to be super huge, uh, it's definitely worth looking into. I, I think the one thing that impresses me the most is the way you can flip the ball head to go into portrait mode very quickly, which usually isn't the case on a tripod, and that's why people often have an L bracket. Um, it really seems to be very clever that's just eliminated all of the complicated... Every time I take my tripod out, I can't remember which knob adjusts which axis on the tripod. And this looks like there's just one thing. Um, the camera clicks in easily. It, it 
you 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 slide a ring to lock it in. It looks really good. I'm really looking forward to this. It's very cool. It's very cool. Kirk, do you have something for this week? I do. I have actually ordered a new camera. I'm I I am emulating Jeff in ordering a Fuji XT3. Um, I'd been thinking about this for a while. Now I've had very good experience buying from Fujifilm here in the UK. Um, buying refurbished products, and I've bought several lenses from them. And the Fujifilm X-T3 lists for £1,349, and the standard refurb price was 999 They dropped it by £50, plus I had a 5% discount. I'll put a link in the show notes so anyone can get a 5% discount from the Fuji store if they're in the UK. Um, so that made it £900, uh, so two-thirds of the price of new, and, and I trusted it's a good refurb. It's not going to be a problem. One of the main reasons I wanted this, and I'm currently using a Fuji X-Pro2, which I really, really like, but one of the main reasons is for pet photography because my Fujifilm X-Pro2 does not have an articulating LCD, and that's something I really miss from other cameras I've had, Olympus cameras I had in the past. I very often like to put the camera low, um, angle the LCD up, and shoot either pets or flowers like that, or sometimes to just get a different point of view on anything else that I'm shooting. You know, the, the way people used to use those um, twin, twin lens reflex cameras back in the day, they would look down and shoot and they'd be shooting from the waist. And that gives a different image than when you're shooting from the head. And there are a couple of other reasons, the better autofocus, as we discussed in a recent episode, link in the show notes. And one other thing is that the uh, viewfinder is better. It's got more dots, it's bigger, and the eyepiece is a lot bigger. Um, I, my vision isn't great and I don't see very much out of my right eye. So I need what I see in the viewfinder to be really good. Um, I like the idea with the viewfinder in the center instead of the left. It's not entirely gear acquisition syndrome, but I had been thinking about it since the X-T3 came out. So I took advantage of this price. Um, and I should have it, um, tomorrow, well before the next episode comes out. So I've picked a snapshot that I don't even have. (laughs) I don't think it's gear acquisition syndrome when you're moving up from something older. I mean, I this could just be me trying to justify my purchases, but you know, I went from the XT1 to the XT3, and it feels yeah, like yeah, that was a lot. You know, I've, I, it, it, it's a lot older. It's a big jump. Um, and I, I was also going to say about the articulating screen, which is something that I've had for you know a long time, so I didn't even think about it. But I like that you pointed out. Not only that it has it, but you know, for all sorts of photography, that also gets you out from behind the camera. So if you're shooting pictures of people or pets, you're not just this this you know dark mass in front of your face. You can interact better. Okay, that's enough. I'm going to go shoot pictures of my cats. Jeff, I want to see some pictures of your bird. I will go take some pictures of my bird. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week... Thanks again for listening.